Good evening, fans. Tim Kittrow here, the voice of NBA Jam, and you're listening to the Game Dev Breakdown Podcast, brought to you by CodeWritePlay.com. Whoa, boom shakalaka! My mom gave birth in 1985. I was blue within a Pac-Man ghost, barely alive. In the Cold War, my only blanket was Tetris. I played Rampart with Reagan, Rampage the world for breakfast. The laundry mat was my sanctuary. That arcade was my church. I thought I was resting. Okay, my desk is creaking. That's going to be worse for me than you later. I'm trying to edit. <laughs> cool. Um. Okay, well, great. Well, uh, John, thank you so much for jumping on a call. How you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? I am okay. Thanks, thanks for, for uh, thanks for having me here. This is uh, it's great to be here and great to to meet you and get to talk about video games and and law and all that stuff. Yeah, uh, thank you for jumping on this so quick. I only contacted you uh, what yesterday. Yeah, you know I'm I'm uh, well. I'll tell you about my story, but I'm kind of in an outreach mode. So you know I'm excited to be able to talk to you and to talk to the folks that. Uh, uh, listen and watch this, uh, this podcast. Awesome. Yeah. You've been, you've been really working hard on uh, getting yourself out there and you've been doing it in interesting ways by covering recent, uh, news stories along your expertise, uh, to start, why don't we have you sort of introduce yourself and your work? So, uh, my name is John Loiterman. Uh, I am the principal attorney at, at my law firm, JBL law. Uh, and I have a interesting background and, and, you know, Please cut me off if I'm if I'm if I'm going on too 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 long about this. But uh, I'm a lawyer uh, from Chicago. Uh, I practiced as a litigator and a transactional attorney in the healthcare field uh, for about ten years, uh, and it was sort of balanced between defending doctors, hospitals, pharmaceutical companies in liability litigation, and doing sort of regulated transactions for the healthcare s- sector. And it's through that that I came to uh, the cannabis industry. So in 2014, uh, Illinois passed cannabis legislation in Illinois. Right. I resigned from my firm. I founded a cannabis company as a lawyer. This was a sort of a, even though it's a cannabis company, it's like a cutting edge legal issue. Uh, And I came at it from a healthcare standpoint. Uh, And I founded this company. I raised money for it. I operated it uh, in uh, Illinois and Oregon for about seven years. And in January of last year, uh, exited the company. We sold out. Uh, I got out of the cannabis business for a lot of reasons I won't get into. I'm, I, I don't really want to have anything to do with the cannabis it, it, industry anymore. And so um, in terms of what I do with my career, I a, the, didn't want to take the next logical step, which was to you know go to work for a bigger cannabis company than the one that I had been operating before. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to go back to a, a, a law firm. Um, I really felt like video games is my calling. And it, it had been for a long time. I worked at a, uh, a studio called High Voltage Software in, in, in Hoffman Estates as a tester, oh. uh, as, a te- as a teenager. But uh, I wasn't that good of a programmer, and um, I didn't see like how test was going to get me into the kind of position that I wanted to be in the games industry. And I kind of, you know, didn't do that well in the computer science classes that I took in in college. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to be a, a a lawyer. And you know, obviously, I did that for a number, for 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 many years, and it was an illegally re- related. Um, executive position that involved a lot of employment stuff and fundraising. Uh, And so when I left, I'm sort of looking at myself like, well, I have this broad range of legal and business skills in terms of organizing businesses, raising money for them, dealing with disputes, dealing with employees, dealing with intellectual property and trademarks and all these different kind of things. Uh, And so I'm looking at this like I want to be in the video game industry. Um, And I wasn't sure exactly how that was going to be. And so I started off just building games on my own. Um, And so I built, uh, I I started using the uh, Pico 8 tool set, um, which I thought was maybe something that you want, that you wanted to talk about. And Pico 8 is definitely. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) Um, I built some games with uh, Pico 8. I released one called Pico Fender. It's very, it's sort of a remix of Defender. Um, I'm into the old old arcade games, and in so doing, I came to be a part of the game development community, and this is really what 
is appealing to me about the games industry. It's not that I have some grand vision about a particular video game that I want to make. It's that I want to be part of the game development community. I want to work with other game developers and thinking about where I'm coming from is like, yeah, I know how to program and I can do some art and design and stuff. But, you know, I spent, you know, 15 years working, working as, as a lawyer and as an executive. And so if I want to add value and I want to be useful to people in the game and game development industry, the way for me to approach that is to be, is to lean into what I do, which is, you know, the legal and the business uh, and the financial side of things. And so I've been trying to uh, put myself out there and just be useful for people. Um, and part of doing that, it connected me with the International Game Developers Association. Uh, I was selected as part of the 2022 uh, Virtual Exchange Velocity Program. And so it's connected me with a lot of other developers. And so I am meeting developers and learning about their experiences and sharing sharing some of my experiences. And uh, representing small developers and trying to find ways to make legal services affordable and accessible to independent game developers, startup game developers. Um, because, you know, I look, you look around the world, you look around the industry, it's, you know, those people are getting screwed left and right. And it's because I get it, right? If you have $20,000, $50,000, or you're totally bootstrapping a game, a game, you don't have money to pay for lawyers but if your game takes off you're not protected uh if you get a publishing deal and you haven't sought you know professional consultation you're likely to get abused um by a publisher that you know is interested in just taking your thing and making as much possible <laughs> giving you yeah. nothing um and so i this is, you know, a, an opportunity for me to reach out and get to be known by game developers so that they so that I can help them uh, and find ways to make legal services more accessible and more affordable for this uh, class of developer, uh, where I think it, it's really a crisis of underrepresentation in the industry. And it's something I want to do something about. Like you said, a lot of de developers are starting at zero, literally at zero and going if I can turn this into a studio and, you know, make solo development work, that's great. Uh, I started that way. And the idea of having to contact a lawyer is scary. Like for, for those people in that situation, it's like at, at almost every step, right? Because it's like, when do I incorporate? What happens if I do do well? And a publisher does come knocking. Like there are a lot of business practices that we don't know about things I've learned from like my wife happens to work in healthcare and she worked in healthcare in Illinois while you worked there. You know, in, in other industries, it's extremely common for, hey, either an employer wants to hire me or I've got this contract to look at. Those people talk to lawyers. And for us, it's like, I could try that, but I don't know anything about it. So I think it's neat that you're trying to find ways to uh, ease people into the concept and also to like make it financially work. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm try trying to find a way to make it financially work. Part of this is education. I think a lot of people think that, you know, they don't understand the value that the lawyer gives them because they don't necessarily see how it plays out in the real world. And so it's one of the things about talking about stories in the news. Uh, and I posted on LinkedIn about, you know, the Mick Gordon story. And there's been the thing with uh, Helena Taylor from Bayonetta and all these different things that go on behind the scenes that, you know, the media doesn't cover that because it's a little bit too inside baseball for gamers and consumers, but developers, you know, it's important for them to see what happens and for them to understand the value that a lawyer can, can give to them. Uh, and, you know, one of the things that I like, that, that I find really exciting about the games in, in industry uh, and as a place for indies and startups is that, you know, if you look at the history of labor and capital in America, uh, you know, for the most part, you had, you know, businesses that, you know, in the middle 20th century, most people that were working, they were, if you were building a car or you were working mm -hmm. in a coal, coal mine or something, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you couldn't do your thing on your own. You had to have somebody that had, you know, a factory with steel and rubber and all the different things that you need to make a car. Uh, or if a, a coal mine, you know, somebody has the real estate or whatever. In the video game industry, it's almost pure human capital crystallized down to something that's monetizable because you can have 
two or three people that are working on tools that they have at their home and they can build a billion dollar franchise with that. That's totally unprecedented in the history of the world and the history of the economy that you can have that much leverage from a small number of people. And so there's just not a lot of, you know, generally the software business has this feature in particular, but video games have this kind of universal appeal where like anybody could be sitting on a gold mine. Anybody could be sitting on the next Minecraft or Angry Birds or, you know, flop, floppy bird, whatever <laughs> you, you want to whirl, right? You know, yeah. small developers can do big things in this world. And when they do, it's terrible to see them get taken advantage of by big money and big and big business. And so it's a reason why I think that the legal community and the investment community also has underestimated indie game dev and the value that it can add uh, and the value that it can create in the future, especially as we're seeing these tectonic shifts in, you know, the world and business and commerce moving online into interactive digital spaces uh, in a way that hasn't as hasn't ever happened before. So it's an exciting uh, time to be part of the video games industry as it expands and the, the boundaries between what is a video game and what is a, you know, industrial application starts to and starts to erode. Yeah. And it's an interesting point because we have this refrain in indie development where they go, don't worry about your ideas because it's the work behind it that makes the product, which is a good motivator. It's a good thing to say, like, don't, don't hesitate to participate in the community and, you know, connect with the other developers around you. But the truth is we are starting to see a trend where, Indies do come up with those hits, your your Minecrafts and your uh, PUBGs and things like that. And we're starting to see big studios swoop in, clone it <laughs> and run. And, and it's like, you know, where do we even go from there if if the uh, indie dream is try to benefit from this thing you made before someone crushes it? You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, and as a business guy and a, and a strategist, I think about, you know, what indie devs, you know, what they're facing. And it's the reality is that if you're Epic or Microsoft or Sony or whatever, they can, they are technically capable of doing anything that the indie dev can. And so if you're an indie dev, like you have to, you have to, you're playing guerrilla warfare game. You have to do, you in, in order to win this asymmetric battle and to outcompete, you know, these huge companies that are making games. You have to do things not that they're not capable of, but things that they have incentives not to do. Uh, and so if you look at what AAA is all about is they have to spend so much money to compete at the AAA level. And when they do, it means they have to be really cautious about what they do because they can't alienate anyone. They have to have this huge audience. Um, and so the indie devs, you know, it, they've have to do a fine line because on the one hand, like indie devs have the freedom and the relatively low risk to go in a different direction and do something new and interesting. At the same time, consumers don't necessarily want new. They want something that is, they want something they can understand. And so if it's too new, well, then they don't know what it is and they can't, and they, and they can't understand it. And so, you know, you have to be different enough to stand out, but not so different that people can't understand what you're, what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, it's fascinating to watch it play out, you know, over and over again as games change and, you know, preferences change in, in the player base and everything. But, um, would it, this interests me about your work because I think a lot of attorneys would go, I want to find, you know, a high profit area to practice with simple issues. And I feel like you have the opposite here, you, <laughs> especially if you were to, uh, you're, you're reaching out to small developers so far. And I, and I don't know what you want the practice to look like later, but, uh, this is an area with low budgets and what seemed to me to be very complicated problems. Is that accurate? They're complicated problems, but they, you know, fit a few different molds. Um, and I think that the issue is, you know, obviously, right. There's a certain amount of risk in not, in not getting paid uh, from developers that go bust. And it's something that I 
understand and I have to account for and how I and how I run my business. But I think a lot of it is just a matter of time shifting. You know, a lot of lawyers will say like, okay, you got to pay me a retainer. So before I even talk with you or help you with your problem, you've got to pay me um, all of this money that I can keep and then bill against as I earn. But like, you've got to put all this money in up front when the developers are looking at it from the opposite perspective, which is like, I'm working on this thing that has a lot of value, but I can't monetize it until it's released. And so the devs need services now and they, you know, hopefully are going to be able to pay later. There's a certain, and so I would say this about, you know, it's something that I'm able to do that maybe not a lot of lawyers are, which is to say like, you know, I'm not interested in spending a lot of time on non-viable products that aren't, that don't have an audience with people that don't have a plan um, for how they're going to do any of this stuff and then hope that they're successful to get paid, you know? So I have to be, um, a little, well, on one hand, I have to be picky about who I work with. On the other hand, you know, I'm being very generous in terms of the education that I can provide to people and the stuff that I put out in the various forums that I make myself available to people for free. So I have, you know, free consultation. So anybody that is an indie game developer, you can at least sit down with me and get like the general framework and talk to me about some things and, figure out what where you need to be. And so there are a lot of things that I can help out with people just by being a nice guy without, you know, rep- representing them. And that's stuff that I definitely want to do. Uh, and I want to try to benefit the indie game community beyond just my clients. You know, I would like to, you know, my goal is to try to create an environment where there is more incentive for creativity in the games industry. Um, I'm hoping that there is something like a golden age in video games coming up over the next five years, five to 10 years. Uh, and the reason I think that that might happen is because, you know, you've got this, a lot of players with a lot of money are entering this space. They're coming at it from different angles, but like, you know, meta has the quest and they're doing all this metaverse software. And so they're kind of entering the game space in a way that they haven't been, you know, it was one thing if they're, when they're hosting Farmville, Farmville having another, having, you know, the meta quest platform is quite another, you know, Amazon is entering the space. Google had Stadia that didn't work out, but they still have the Google play store. And I'm sure that, you know, they've got other things that are, that, that are brewing, you know, Apple has the app store and they may have a VR thing coming and they may have a bunch of other things that, that they're doing. Obviously the big traditional players, you've got valve. That's not, you know, they've got the, 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 the steam deck. And so there's all these companies that are spending money, not just on developing games, but on developing platforms and bringing people into their ecosystem. And a lot of that money is going to end up with developers who are building things that are exclusive to those platforms and that those companies are going to pay for exclusive stuff. Just the fact that there's a lot of investment coming in this, in my view, means that there's a lot of opportunity for developers. And there's a lot of opportunities for developers to, 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 create experiences that are that are innovative and use the features of these different hardware platforms or that are in incorporating you know different commerce things the various you know web3 and crypto and, and nft kinds of things you know i'm not i think there's you know there are a bunch of legal issues with how that's <laughs> been done there's a bunch of legal issues yet to be resolved about about that thing but i think it's a another area in which there's you're going to see more innovation you're going to see something gel from all this invest investment with um you know digital digital assets and crypto and, and things like this and so it's an, it's another vector for investment in the in the game in the games industry uh and it's why right coming back to the, you know the legal stuff is if you want to have your studio bought out you can't just build a great game and then expect to be, you know, you have to prepare for that in terms of how your business is organized, in terms of how you've protected your your IP and assets, in terms of how you've covered the liabilities that you may have accumulated in the press. And so a lot of these things you can't, you have to kind of assume that you're going to be successful at the beginning, because if you wait until you are, it's too, if you wait until you have a hit, it's too late to figure this stuff out. And you're going to leave a lot of money on the table. And, you know, gosh, for people that are working on a game for a year or two years, and they get nothing 
<laughs> and if it's successful, they really want they, you know, you capture lightning in a bottle, um, you may never come again. And so, you know, people really have to think carefully about how much of themselves they're investing in these games and all the different things that can go go wrong. It's it's interesting because you just came from cannabis, which was a brand new, legally a brand new thing, uh, where Based on a little, I tried to follow the news about that. Uh, I'm a million miles away from that issue, but I, I found it interesting in that, like, it's becoming legal for the first time in, you know, Midwestern states, basically. And it seems like lawyers are kind of leading the way and, and they're at least the ones in the best position to help navigate that. And it seemed like all the companies I had heard of that were getting into this space were either headed up directly by lawyers or uh, the lawyers were the ones with the map, you know, because <laughs> it, it sounded like the laws everywhere were extremely complicated. Everything was extremely weird. And now in certain ways, it seems like games are kind of doing the same thing. We don't know what crypto laws are going to end up looking like. Uh, we don't know if the metaverse will raise new issues, you know? I think, you know, and it's some, something of the cannabis industry experience that I think is the the fact that there is no playbook for what's coming uh, and that we're figuring it out as as we go. I, I do think that there's something that's resonant about that in the in the games industry. Um, one of the things that I think is should be a lesson that I took out of the cannabis industry, and one of the reasons I I don't really want to be involved in that is that is the extent to which the long arm of the government influences or if sometimes dictates what the competitive balance in industry is. Right. Uh, and so this is not a, well, it's going to become more of an issue for video games in the future, which is that as the government gets involved and regulates things, they tend to not regulate things in ways that are going to advantage the little guy. They tend to regulate things in ways that are going to advantage the big guys and the influ and the influential people and the folks that have uh, control in government. And so video games is very nice in the sense that it's mostly, at least compared to cannabis, it's mostly unregulated. Um, there's, you know, obviously as a business, you know, you have to pay your taxes and you've got employment, things like this, but in terms of what you make in your product and how you sell it, you have a lot of flexibility as a game developer that you don't have as a legal cannabis uh, pr producer. And so I think it's the experience of running a highly regulated company, you know, the games industry should be aware about asking for various things to be regulated or controlled or standardized because you may want that that thing to help consumers or to help small developers or whatever. But in practice, it hardly ever works out that way. Um, and so people, in my opinion, the games, games industry should be cautious about, you know, have, we went through a little bit about this in the nineties with the ESRB and, yeah. um, censorship in the industry and, and the industry ultimately took a, a tactic, which was very smart, which said, we don't want government regulation. We're going to have our own thing. Right. Uh, they're going to come up with these ratings and it's been good. And basically, I don't know that the whole debate about censorship in video games has, has gone away, but the sort of this is poison for children. This is dangerous. That flavor of the conversation hasn't really existed since the since the 90s on a mainstream level because of the ESRB. And so, you know, that's a good example about how like the industry can get out in front of things and to prevent the government from getting involved, because I guarantee that whatever the government did would be much more difficult for game developers and publishers to deal with than the ESRB, which answers to the which answers to the industry and not to um you know normal political forces yeah it, what's funny is and this government stuff was not even didn't cross my mind to discuss today but it it does come up very naturally because i happen to be in the st louis area missouri has a number of politicians who are sort of making a name for themselves trying to not focus on state issues but go like hey look at me look what I'm going to tackle for you, the little man, you know? And, and uh, so this is one of the states where politicians have gone, we need to attack video games instead of a million issues that, that are way further up on the priority list, you know, evil loot boxes and predatory, you know, practices or whatever. And it's like, okay, I understand wanting to look out for 
you know, especially in the case where it's like a kid has mom's cell phone and she's, you know, she's letting him play Candy Crush and he accidentally orders $150 worth of whatever. Yeah, that's bad. We've heard the stories, but like at the same time, like you said, if, if we jump into big, heavy handed regulation on that, is it going to hurt King who makes Candy Crush or is it going to hurt me and my friends who tried to make a little mobile app? And now because of the, the verbiage of the weird bill, because no one knew what they were talking about, now we are in hot water legally if we do almost anything. It's like, you'd have to explain to me how that's not a state politician attacking small business owners in that state. It's getting really weird. Um, I mean, I would say this, right? If there was going to be some regulation that that comes out of the government that says, oh, well... Uh, this is how we're going to regulate microtransactions in video games. You know, in my experience, you can expect that that legislation will be written by King's lawyers, nah. <laughs> not by the people in that you think are protecting your interests. It's King's lawyers sitting down and telling the politicians, this is what the bill looks like and you're going to pass it. Um, and, and the idea that they're going to pay attention to consumers and things like that, that is just, you know, it's not how it works. Certainly in the cannabis industry, that's 100% how, how it worked. And I think if you look at energy and healthcare and pharmaceuticals and on and on and on in the economy and every place where, you know, you need the government to give you the ticket in order to play the game that, what do you know? There's only five companies that have the ticket and everybody else is scrubs and they can't play. Video games are not like that because you don't need the ticket from anyone. You don't have anyone to, to you know, the gatekeeper for video games is can you make it? And, you know, at least on the PC, there anybody can make anything and put it out there. You can have your own website hosted with your own, own server. As long as you have an ISP, you can put your thing out there without any, any restrictions. That is not true for a whole range of different in industries. And so people in the game industry ought to cherish that and respect that because you know we're quick, quickly moving to an it's although i think there's a golden age coming there's a bunch of things to be concerned about the shape of that golden age which is you may have a situation where well now all the devices look like the iphone and you know the iphone the iphone and the quest and now you you know the pcs look more like they're running apple silicon and they're running new versions of windows that don't let you run Anything you, you know, you can see a situation where it's like, gosh, unless you get your ticket stamped by one of these half a dozen giant companies, no one can play your game. That's the world that some companies want to exist in. And so it doesn't happen unless we, uh, and right, the big companies are never going to come out and say, this is our goal is to consolidate all these things. They're going to sell it as, well, we want to protect you from um, microtransaction abuse. And we want to protect you from this and this and this. And that's how they sell it. But what you get is five companies that control everything. And so it's something that game dev development community, I think, should bear in mind as they ask or consider various things that might be regulated in the industry is be careful what you wish for, because those rules are very unlikely to favor um, small business and small developers. Yeah. And, and like you said, I think the education issue is important. Uh, I happen to be a nerd about legal stuff. I enjoy listening to, uh, there are a couple of legal podcasts I listen to that have nothing to do with games. I don't know why I've just always been interested in that kind of thing, but, uh, you've done a fantastic job of covering issues on, uh, right now it looks like your primary place for that is LinkedIn. where you are doing posts on, like you said, Bethesda, uh, the, the Superman demo recently, the Bayonetta situation. And I would encourage people to follow that kind of content from an expert who understands the legal issues and can comment on, you know, without uh, being directly involved in it, you know, having a sense of like, here's what you should be looking at. Here are the implications. Here's what it means, because there is a lot to it. And um, I, I know you've only been on the current Twitter account for about a year, it looks like. Um, is is that kind of thing a big part of your strategy? Are you going to branch out, maybe do some article writing around the web? Like, what's that going to look like for you? Uh, you know, I think, you know, I'm sort of playing the uh, content marketing playbook, which is you know, doing my thing and putting it out there and letting people um, know 
what it is that I do, because I do feel like there is, it's not for every, the content is not for everybody, but there is, you know, if you're a developer, if you care about the business of gaming, if you care about these legal issues, you know, this is stuff that not a lot of people are talking about. You know, you may get a discussion about, you know, a news story about Mick Gordon or whatever in Kotaku or uh, Polygon or what any 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 of the the big media sites, but they tend not to, you know, cover the legal side of it in detail because most of their readers aren't interested in it and that. And I get it. But if you're a developer and not a consumer. You may be looking at this not like, oh, here's what's you know the drama and these people getting mad at each other. It's like, what can I learn? How do I protect? How do I protect myself? Uh, and that's kind of the angle that I want to take, which is what is the takeaway from these things that happen in the news? How do you know if you if you're watching the Mick Gordon and its software thing? I mean, I think if you're a de- develop, you don't want to be on either side of that. Yeah. Uh, and so there's you know lessons to take away about publicity. There's lessons to take about how you. you know, it's one of the other things that I feel like I can help people with is, I don't know about you know Mick Gordon at his level, but like in Hollywood and in, in sports, talent gets so get they hire a lawyer to negotiate for them, and so that the the so that the lawyer and the negotiator can get tough with the trained lawyers and negotiators that the business have, and the creative can do what they do, um, and so I think a lot of times somebody might be a voice actor or a designer. Um, and they're put into a position where they're on the other side of a negotiating table with a lawyer who's been negotiating with people every day for 20 years. And this is a person that's whatever they're negotiating this thing and, and they're concerned about, well, I don't want to push too hard on this. And, you know, I don't want to ask for this. I don't, because they're concerned about how it's going to affect their professional and creative relationship with the studio. It's something that I can help with, which is, you know, you're, you're negotiating a deal get somebody in to get tough with them. If you're not getting, if you're getting the raw end of, you know, if you're a contract worker and, you know, I don't know if what Mick Gordon said is true, but if it was, and I'm sure it happened to somebody where they keep moving the goalposts on you and they, you know, when you agree to go on with it, then they're saying, Oh, you agree to all these things and they abuse that situation. It's something that I can help with for developers that really are like, Hey, I'm in a, 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 a situation if you're a contract worker, right, and you are negotiating with the developer and you have this work, you're uncomfortable making a stink about issues that are important to you because you don't want to compromise your creative relationship with the studio. Bringing in a professional can help ease that burden. It can help get you a better result. It can help, you know, ease the psychological burden of having to have this, you know, conflict with somebody. It's like, just outsource it, get somebody to deal with it. And yeah, it's not free, but you know, look what happened to Mick Gordon, right? He's tried to do all this stuff himself. And at least the picture he paint, what painted was, well, I continue to believe in the good faith of these other people. And I continued to um, trust that they were going to do the right thing. And I put myself out there and it's the kind of thing that a skilled negotiator wouldn't do. <laughs> a skilled negotiator is going to hold the other side to exactly what they said they're going to do. And if you get too far out in front of that, you know, things get cut off and creatives, I think, are less likely to do that. Uh, and I understand why, um, because, the, you know, after you've got your deal, now they now you have to go back and work with these people. And if you've been super aggressive about it, you know, and so whatever, bring out your bulldog, bring it, you know, have your lawyer, you know, go in there. And uh, it's not a huge time commitment for them. And so something that I've been thinking about and experimenting with is, you know, for developers, when they engage with a lawyer, Going back to, um, you know, they have to pay a return, a retainer, and then pay this lawyer by the hour, um, and so it disincentivizes you from sharing all the information that might be relevant. It disincentivizes you from asking all the questions you might have because the clock is ticking, and so um, finding ways to give uh, developers like a package deal where they pay a fixed price and they get a certain amount of research and advisory services that may not get me fully involved in documenting a transaction or whatever. But if I understand the situation and I need to get on a phone call with somebody to help them negotiate or enforce a a contract, you know, the other side, just knowing that this person is represented gives their issue more gravitas. Um, And so uh, it's thinking about providing general counsel services for 
developers. Uh, and what I mean by that is, you know, they pay me some fixed amount based on the size of their project or the size of their studio. And, you know, if they have a research question, I can give them an answer to it. If they have a problem they're worried about, I can help them think about it and get out in front of it. If they think they might want to file a lawsuit, I can help them think through that. And as long as I'm not, you know, responsible for filing that, you know, that would be a separate engagement, but it's like, we could talk about what that might look like. If you receive a lawsuit or a threatening letter or whatever, you can talk about that with me. And all these different issues come at a fixed, predictable price um, that's targeted for any developers for me to build relationships with them. That is something that I am definitely looking to do. And it's not something that a lot of lawyers, because a lot of lawyers were just looking to make as much money as possible, whereas <laughs> I want to be a helpful member of this community. And I also coming, although I have a lot of experience with these legal issues, I don't have um, a huge reputation in the games industry. And so I have to pay my dues. I have to, you know, show, I have to write, show, don't tell, right? And so um, I, the way for me to, um show people right for me for me to make the case that i can add value to developers is to just go out and do it and not talk about it and say blah 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 blah, blah. uh and that's how i operate is you know put up or shut up and it's why i've done a, a bunch of cases representing developers on contingency doesn't work for everything but i had some developers that had their game uh their copyright in, infringed and so i went after the infringer and got them to pay and the developer didn't pay me anything for that. I just took a piece of what I recovered from the bad guy. Uh, and, you know, that's probably a developer would never would have gotten nothing because in other than the fact that they knew me, they would never have even dreamed of hiring a lawyer to solve this problem because they knew me. They got paid a lot of money and they didn't have to. And it was me who ate the risk. And I ate the risk because I looked at the facts and I was like, this is a good case. I can recover on this. And I did. Um, and so that doesn't work with everything where, you know, if you have a copyright violation or something, there's damages, there's a there's a, a bad guy to get money from. If you are, um, you know, trying to organize your uh, business entity for your studio, there's not like a contingency fee ar ar arrangement for that sort of thing. But that's where the fixed fees uh, come in. And for me, um, I come up with packages that are targeted to individual developers because you know I'm at a place in my career where my real goal is to add value to indie developers and to add value to the game development community in general uh and not just to be a lawyer and do whatever thing makes me the most the the, the most money you know I expect to be fairly compensated but you know that's an offshoot of providing value to people it's not the end unto itself. The end is making rebalancing things for indie devs so that they can do more and better work and not be uh, victims of big business and living hand to mouth. A long time ago in the industry, my understanding is it was more common for people to um, in, in like developer positions, they would have agents and stuff like they didn't do any of their own negotiation. Uh, it was a smaller industry. And so it was easier to get a sense of like what that job would entail for an agent. But it's a little bit like that. It's like it is scary to try to negotiate something yourself. The average person is in no way prepared to truly interpret a contract put together by attorneys at a huge publisher or uh, any publisher. Uh, there are a lot of small publishers now, and that comes with its own set of issues. I think small publishers are good to work with, but um, especially when you can find somebody willing to go for a set fee, I can do the following for you and not just take out a big chunk of your savings, hand it to me, and we'll see what comes up. Like that part's scary, but if you could find somebody willing to work with you on an issue by issue basis, that's, that's a good thing, you know? Um, and it's another thing that, you know, there are changes that are happening in the legal industry at the same time uh, that make this possible. And so one of the benefits that I have, although I've been practicing law for many years, I have a new firm. Uh, and so my new firm is formed in the post-COVID world. And so 
not only is it formed in the post-COVID world, but as a software developer, you know, I have a much more sophistication than your average lawyer about how to leverage automation and computer tools and microservices and things like this. So unlike a lot of other lawyers out there, I don't have an office. I don't have staff. I don't have all these different things that cost a lot of money and that don't add any value to clients. Um, it's one of the things about the legal world is there's this tremendous amount of elitism about, well, you know, the best lawyers work at, you know, thus and such of a big name firm. And if you go to that firm's office in the big city, it is a palace in the sky <laughs> with <laughs> yeah. gold and marble. And it's filled with, you know, junior associates making $200,000 a year and everything is the finest and the best and whatever. And it's like, none of that adds any value to clients. And hey, you know, if you're Activision and you've got a couple billion, you know, more than a couple, you got billions of dollars coming in, who cares? Whatever. You want the best, you pay, pay, for, pay, pay for the best. And, you know, whatever. I'm, I know f- folks that work at those firms and there are things that those firms do that I can't, you know. And so there's going to be certain things that, uh, that and it's one of the things about, you know, somebody with a background like mine is, I don't have an ego about saying like, oh, well, I can do everything. Like I know where my limitations are. And so if you have a case that's going to go before the Supreme Court, you got to get a specialist with that. If you have, you know, a giant, you know, antitrust case, you know, like active uh, Microsoft is buying Activision and they're dealing with the, the FTC. I'm not the guy for that. I'm not the guy for that. There's lawyers at big firms, but I think what a lot of people happen is, well, I don't know what's a good lawyer. I want to make sure I get a good lawyer. And so they'll pay $1,000 an hour to to hire some big firm. And the problem with that is not that those people aren't good, but that the two most important factors in any legal representation that you were going to get from anyone is the law and the facts. And your lawyer doesn't have any control over either of those. <laughs> and so... Uh, Yes, you know, good legal representation can help you, but what's most important about getting quality legal representation is having somebody that's knows all the facts and is familiar with your whole situation. And so if you are gun shy about having that person run around carte blanche and looking through everything that you do and spending hours on the phone with you because you don't want to pay for it, well, then they can only help you as much as you help them help you. Um, And so- a lawyer can't solve an issue or can't address an issue that they don't know about. And so if you, you know, if you have your game and you tend to bring it to a lawyer and there's some component of it that might be patentable, unless you ask the lawyer, Hey, is this patentable? They're unlikely to give you an opinion about that. If you, you know, there's a bunch of things where if you don't ask and you don't know to ask, you aren't going to get the service that you need. And so to some extent, I think of myself and I you know, used to be in the healthcare field, kind of like a general practitioner, like you go to your family doctor and they can help you with a lot of different issues and they can be very helpful and they can also help you triage and connect. You know, if you get cancer or whatever, well, they're not going to treat you for that. They're going to say, hey, talk to this fellow. He's a cancer specialist and they're going to help coordinate your care with them. That's part of what I'm thinking about with these general predictable general counsel packages is, hey, there there's going to be some things that can come up where I may not be the right person for it. And if that happens, A, I know what the limits of my expertise are and B, I know folks that can handle that. And I know the right questions to ask them and the right information to provide them with. And so, you know, I can make those connections and identify where those um, working with more specialized lawyers is going to make sense and help clients control the costs when they do. Uh, And so it's another way to add add value to folks is is to understand like, hey, even if I'm getting this fixed fee, there's going to be a lot of things that I can deal with. There's going to be a lot of problems I can help you solve. But there's definitely things that are um, outside of my area of expertise, or they are a very, you know, particular esoteric area of the area of the law where you need to have a a a, 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 a specialist uh, in it. And I'm familiar with what those things are, and it's how I run my practice is to you know refer things uh, out. A good example of that is um, patent stuff. You know, I can help you spot. Like, oh, this might be patentable. 
uh, this might be, or there might be a patent that you could be in, in vi violation of. But if you want to file a patent, you know, that's a very specialized area. And I would refer that out to somebody that just does does that. But that person isn't going to help you organize your, organize your business and set it up. They're not going to help you with fundraising. They're not going to help you with a bunch of different, you know, sort of strategic considerations as well. And so there's a lot of things that I can offer as somebody that's run a business, raised money for it and sold it, that lawyers, that the average lawyer, or even a, a, a very, very good specialist isn't going to be able to have that ex experience with it. And so um, there's a lot of things I feel like I can add, I can add value uh, to indie developers and small, small developers. I should say I also represent, um, you know, although video games is really where my personal focus is, there are a lot of the same issues come up with tech startups mm -hmm. um, and uh, other other small businesses and things like that. So I, I represent folks like that as as well. That's something that's interesting about law compared to medicine. Uh, obviously, my wife, if she wanted to stop seeing, you know, general uh, cases and start doing surgery, for example, I mean, there's a very complicated process, time intensive to get that done. Whereas in law, uh, it's I mean, it's it's important what how you define your practice, but it's less formal. Right. I mean, you can kind of drift towards what uh, you find yourself doing frequently and doing well. And you can kind of slide into a, a specialty uh, and just sort of become that guy if it's something that's a, a good fit, right? Well, it's an interesting thing about about lawyer ethics. And so one of the, the things that in a lot, of, a lot of states, if not most states, is you actually can't promote yourself as a lawyer and say that you are – you know, an expert or a specialist in one particular category, even though most lawyers are specialists in one category, uh, in terms of lawyer advertising, in a lot of cases, you can't come out and say like, I am this or I am that. And <laughs> so in terms of legal training, you know, lawyers are trained to be generalists and by ethical standards, you know, you have to sort of notionally, you know, what most people do is say, well, these are the things that I do. Uh, and you don't say, well, I'm a specialist or an expert in these things. I I think there's probably you know some some political reason <laughs> for why why that ethical rule uh, e exists because right the reality is that most lawyers are are specialists because that is what is most highly compensated in the legal world. And so becoming a you know if you want to make a lot of lawyer want a lot of money as a lawyer, the, you know obviously the best way to, is to have deep pocketed clients but after after that in terms of you know uh skill sets you know a lot of lawyers choose to be specialists in one narrow area of the law because that is um very valuable being a and it's the same way for medicine you know if you are a of cancer specialist or a heart specialist or whatever those people tend to make more money than the family practice physicians and you know, like I said, I expect to be fairly compensated, but you know, the goal here is not for me to build a financial empire. The goal here is for me to be useful and to add value to developers um, mm -hmm. because I believe in the community. I believe in what developers are doing. I really, right, as a, as a gamer, I want to see, you know, more variety and more innovation. Uh, I want to see the people who create these experiences be rewarded for that. And I don't want to see you know, the game industry become what happens to a lot of industries where there's only five companies or six companies and that's the whole game and there's nothing else. And everybody else, if you want to play, you have to play their game or you have to build their game and there's not another game in town. I worry about that someday, even even with this golden age. I mean, the reason why there's all this money being invested is because those companies want to have monopoly power over the industry. Mm -hmm. And um, it's one of the things that I've thought about, you know, and and I'm not in a position to do to to really take action about. But certainly, I would like to be a part of organizing independent developers. You know, if the big companies aren't going to allow a space for independent developers to do their thing, well, then they should make their own space um, that serves. You know, right? Microsoft has a plat has a platform where they sell games, and it serves their interest. Nintendo has a platform where they sell games. It serves their interest. You know, indies could build their own, their own platform. And so um, indies could build their own platform, you know, talking about some of the labor and capital issues we were talking about before, like, 
you know, developers don't need a factory. We don't need raw raw, raw materials for, for 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 things. And so, really, the only thing that as that creatives get from a big publisher and a big studio is money to pay for food and a roof over their head. They're, they're really, you know, it's not like, you know, you, it's not like the, the factory where like, if you are, are fed and you're paid and you're taken care of, you still can't build cars. Yeah. Um, and, you know, coal miners, same thing. Most of the work that was done in the 20th century, but game development is different in that if you are fed and you have a place to live and you have, you don't even need to have your own computer. Like you can go to the library, you can go to the library and yeah. use a computer and do and build and, and build games there. And so, you know, I think that I am trying to encourage the people to think deeply about how radical of a shift this is in the way that work is done and the way that commerce happens, at least in, in America. And I think that those underlying forces favor developers in ways that they're not capitalizing on right now. I would agree. I think that's true. It's it's an area for a lot of thought, a lot of collaboration, and uh, we can see some really cool stuff, I think. Um, you and I started uh, having conversation. We followed each other for a while, I think, but uh, we we started discussing stuff on Twitter when um, this this whole Superman demo thing uh, unfolded where somebody had like taken something from Itch that somebody had just put out there going, hey, look at my demo, sold it on Steam. A lot of people have, have heard the story, especially if you're active on game dev Twitter. Um, and, and it became a, a complicated thing, which is sort of resolved now, but you had, had put out there that, uh, it's sort of, it should be a wake up call that indies should be looking at, uh, intellectual property issues. Um, so removing some of the complications from that, he was in another country. We don't know where the, the person who took the game was. Let's say they were local. Let's say there wasn't the issue of Superman also right, to, to right. deal with. Uh, if that had just been a run-of-the-mill indie situation, uh, how how could they have done that differently to hopefully ensure a better outcome, say, if if it hadn't been resolved and it needed to move forward? How should they have sort of protected themselves? You know, the way to protect yourself is to, you know, file for copyrights on your, on your game. Now, this gets – and I'll touch very briefly on this, a little yeah. bit of a complication because there's a bunch of ways – to copyright your game and components in the game. You know, you can copyright the binary executable, but you know, what about your characters? What about the music? What about, you know, design elements and all different things? And so you may want to think about registering the, those things separately so that they could be sold to other people. But the key thing is if you don't register your copyright, well, actually the Supreme Court recently ruled that you have to register before you can bring an action against some, some, somebody, but you don't have to register before they infringe. Uh, if you do it um, before you publish or within 90 days of, of, of the pub, of the publication, uh, is you get attorney's fees, which if you didn't have this registration, you would have to pay your attorney out of the damages that you recovered from the bad guy. And so having attorney's fees awarded separately gives you more leverage in the negotiation. You also get statutory damages. And so the that's written into the law, you know, there's a formula about what about what the damages are are worth and you could get more than that, but you get at least that by statute. If you don't have the timely registration and you try to recover on these things, then you don't have the attorney fee component and you don't get the statutory damages. And so you may find that well, gosh, the infringement is really clear, but there's not enough damages that you can really sink your teeth into to get a lawyer to represent you on contingency. Because they're like, I don't know what the damages are worth, and I'm not going to get attorney's fees. Even if I win, I got to kick it out of your damages, and if they're not big enough, then why would we take this case? And so yeah. what happens to a lot of people that don't register is, you know, you even if you catch somebody red-handed, it's like, well, they stole your game, but they only sold $10,000 of it. Well, you know, bringing a bringing a federal copyright case, you know, it's going to cost more than that. And so you may find that, like, you just can't do anything because there's not enough damages to justify you paying a lawyer. There's not enough damages to justify a lawyer taking it on contingency. And so you end up just being vic victimized. And if you had the copyright registration, you know, you would come into that situation much stronger. It's much easier to get a lawyer involved. It's much easier to justify either paying for the services yourself or getting a lawyer to take the risk. If you can see, oh, well, the statute says I'm going to get a quarter million dollars here. 
Uh, and so if I win, I know I'm going to, I'm going to get that versus no registration. I win, maybe we get five bucks, you know, because that's all the damages that we can, that we can prove. Register your copyrights. Um, if you want to, and if you want to talk to me about that, you know, it's, you'd have to pay me to actually go and register your copyright for you, but I can help you think folks think through the issues about what might be copyrightable, what they might have in their game that might be someone else's copyright that might be an issue for them. And I'm happy to talk with developers about that, about that issue. Yeah, it it was an interesting one. And I agree. It was a wake up call that, you know, we're we're not generally thinking about that day to day because we're, we're just going, I want to make games. I, especially this guy who wasn't even planning to sell the game. It was like, look what I can do. And, uh, you know, you still want to control people's access to it. And as much as I love itch, there are some predators <laughs> scrolling through itch. Um, I've, I've made small game jam projects with my son who was like f- five. In one example, we made a little train game together. Woo woo. You can ride this train around a track and God help me. If somebody hadn't stolen it, put it up on another website and monetize ads, they stole a game from my child. So there's like, there's no level that, that these people won't sink to, uh, to take free work and run. It, it is unfortunately somewhat common more than, more so than I realized. So, uh, definitely worth thinking about that. Um, time's kind of running out. I've gotten no, speaking of specialties, how did you land on Pico 8? Um, I landed on Pico 8 just because, you know, I've been to the whole retro thing and I really thought that Pico 8 was really, comfortable environment for me to develop in and a comfortable environment for people to learn in. And it's one of the other things I do is I teach, um, I teach intro to game development course for kids. Um, Hmm. it's one of the things I've done with my, um, with my independent, with my game studio, Sunbear Interactive is I have this course, uh, where I teach young kids how to, you know, variables and, um, conditional expressions and functions and loops and stuff like this, how to make a simple game. And Pico 8 is really perfect for that. And I just think it's such an accessible platform. Um, and it's a project that I really support. I think other people should do it. And I, I support uh, Lexalawful and Zep um, in everything that they they do. And I really kind of want to be an evangelist for for Pico 8 and the stuff they do because I, I as somebody that really tried to learn computing and and game development and programming a lot this pico 8 really had the right mix of power and flexibility and ease of use and community and all these different things that really made it um possible for me to get better at game development and so i i can't recommend it enough for anybody that wants to learn how to code anyone wants to learn how to make games yeah you can do more like fancy stuff with unity and unreal but like it the engine's doing all that stuff for you. Like you really, you know, <laughs> that you're 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 building more foundational skills using Pico 8. And maybe the things that you produce aren't going to be quite as impressive to the uneducated or unknowledgeable con- con- consumer. But um I think the learning that you get there is more foundational than what you can get with a with a big big bigger engine where it's more kind of results oriented than Pico yeah. 8. I, it's, it's true. I talk to a lot of unity people, unreal people, and it's not uncommon for me to check their Twitter feed and see just mind blowing demos and stuff. But on some level, it's like, you probably know what you're doing, but for all I know, you downloaded this straight off the asset store and you've just got a, a gif of it running. Whereas like you have impressive Pico eight graphics, uh, gifs on your, on your profile. And I go, okay, this guy knows what he's doing. Like there's no, there's no question. He knows what he's doing with Pico 8, which is cool. Um, so as we kind of wrap up, uh, let people know where to follow you, your work, uh, anything you want. Sure. Um, the, probably the best way to get in touch with me is either Twitter where I am at uh, proton person. Uh, and that's my handle on Twitter. And then you can find me on LinkedIn. My name is John Loiterman. I'm one of a kind. There's no other John Loitermans out there. So uh, it's L O I T E R M A N. Uh, and you can reach out to me on LinkedIn. Uh, and I have a, um, through the LinkedIn, you can schedule a free consultation with me, uh, through Calendly. And at least for now, uh, I am offering free consultations to indie devs. And so you can schedule a meeting with, with a lawyer and sit down and talk to one for, 
30, 45 minutes. Uh, and as time, my time and schedule allows, you know, I'm going to do those obligation free, cost free. Uh, I hope that some folks choose to sign up for more services, but I understand that a lot of them won't. Uh, and so I hope you check me out on LinkedIn and on Twitter uh, and uh, reach out and and uh, ask questions. And don't be don't be a stranger. Don't be shy. You know, your game is important. Uh, and I hope you choose to let me help you protect it. Awesome. Well, uh, thank you for talking to me for free of charge. And uh, I hope we can uh, check in again soon. Absolutely. This was fantastic. Thanks again for having me. I really enjoyed our conversation and I would definitely be down to do this uh, again on another occasion. So very cool. Thanks, John. Okay, as always, if you enjoy Game Dev Breakdown, please consider subscribing wherever you're listening right now. We have articles, show notes, and more available at CodeWritePlay.com. You can reach out on Twitter at CodeWritePlay, at GameDevPod, and me at MechaToddZilla with one D and two Ls. Thank you guys so much. Thank you to our guests. Thank you to our sponsors. Show them some love, and we will talk to you next time. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>